Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is some peaceful science on the radio for you this week. I decided to go with the peaceful approach. Do you like it? Uh, it's, it's, it's different. Yeah. It's, um, Do you think it'll get the audience excited? It's, it's certainly more, uh, seems more upmarket. Oh, oh, yeah, that's good, yeah, isn't it? Yeah. I was about to fall asleep. Oh, right. Well, maybe we'll revert a little bit. Hey, Lost in Science, it is science on your radio. My name is Chris, by the way, uh, and we've got some science for you. Today, I am going to be talking about Dr. William McBride, uh, who passed away recently. He was known as the person who alerted the world to the dangers of thalidomide. I am going to be looking at his controversial career and what actually happened around thalidomide. And, yeah, some of the um, the ongoing discussions happening today and yeah, all of that stuff. He was an Australian He was scientist. Australian, yes. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Do you think people called him thalidomide? No. Claire, what are you talking about? <laughs> Well, um, there's a new Jurassic Park movie out at the cinemas. Um, I wouldn't recommend seeing it, but I would recommend... <laughs> yeah, film criticism for you on Lost in Science. That's <laughs> the quickest movie review ever. Yeah. I would recommend listening to Lost in Science because I am going to talk about dinosaurs. Bring you up to speed with what's been happening in the world of dinosaurs, specifically Not a lot for about 65 million years. Yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Oh, God. The science of dinosaurs, however, oh, ongoing. You no, so you're talking about sauropods, is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm talking about sauropods. Oh, I love a good sauropod. They're the long ones, aren't they? They're the long ones. The long with stampy the big, ones. With the big stampy feet, <laughs> the long necks, the long tails. You might remember them from such dinosaurs as Brontosaurus, Diplodocus. Anyway, we'll uh, talk about that. Okay, good. Um, I'm getting quite distracted here. Uh, Stuart, what are you... Uh, well, I just thought I would quickly have a talk about another uh, famous person, being, who passed away recently, Coco the Gorilla. Uh, and exactly famous gorilla, I think Famous, would, famous yeah. gorilla. Well, you know, some people think gorillas are people too, but, you know, personally, that's, that's entirely up to the individual. But I'm just going to talk about why Coco is famous and, uh, and what she's famous for. But I'll, I'll get, go into more detail later in the so show. So Coco... Um, Coco- was the gorilla who famously talked. The famously, sign language gorilla. Famously used sign language. So not Coco. Communicated. Communicated. Not Coco the monkey from the cereal. <laughs> no. No, no, no. That's not, a different Coco. No, no, no. Not not. That's from a Coco monkey, Pops. not a great okay. Yeah, get, get it right. Monkeys have tails. Okay, well, we're going to be having three stories about famous people who famous people or beings who've, who've died. Some of them recently, some of them many millions of years ago. But anyway... On with the show. Yes, you listen to Lost in Science, and I am going to be talking about the Dr. William McBride, who died recently. Um, for those who haven't heard of him, Dr. William McBride was the Australian obstetrician who is most famous for alerting the world to the dangers of thalidomide. Uh, the drug that causes of course, birth, birth defects. Def- yes. defects yeah. His career, though, ended up in controversy. So we're going to look at 
what exactly happened and what the controversy was and what oh. the science of the whole kind of thing is. Where was he from in Australia? Sydney. Mm. Don't okay. hold that against you. But like, first of all, I should just say, what is thalidomide? Okay, so thalidomide, it was a sedative, it started as, it was released in 1957 by the German drug company Chemie Grunenthal, um, but it was also used to treat nausea and particularly morning sickness in pregnant women. Uh, so in the early research, they did not seem to show that it was safe, but they hadn't really studied it in connection with birth defects. So they studied it as a what as an antidepressant or as a yeah sort of a sedative sedative hypnotic they called but it but they yeah. hadn't looked at its effects on pregnant women is that is yeah that basically so they went oh it's worked for this other thing it should be fine yeah well it's it's also yeah they they thought it should be fine and they, they hadn't thought to test it and also you have to test it over it's not easy to test those things in that sort of circumstance where you get into mm. stuff right, like animal course. testing and yeah. stuff as well. Anyway, at the time, Dr. William McBride, he was obstetrician at the Crown Street Women's Hospital in Sydney. Now, according to a report by the ABC's Norman Swan, who got a Walkley Award for his story on this in 1988, um, there was a nurse, Sister Pat Sparrow. She was the first to notice the babies being born on Dr. McBride's ward with limb defects, um, or what they call phocomelia, P-H-O-C-O-M-E-L-I-A, for those who are playing Scrabble at home. Now, the only difference that she could think of was that he prescribed thalidomide, whereas the doctors on the other wards didn't so much. So she told Dr. McBride about it. Um, according to Norman Swan's story, it took a while for her to convince him. But she did, apparently, because wow. in December 1961, a letter by him was published in the medical journal The Lancet describing what had happened. And this was the first English-language publication to describe the side effects of thalidomide. When you say the first <clears throat> English-language publication... Nicely picked up, Claire. Mm. So, about a month earlier, some German pediatricians presented their findings on limb deformities at a medical conference. They noticed an increasing rate of it. And then following that, another pediatrician, um, Widukind Lenz, who had done quite a bit of detective work to try and figure out what was going on, he stated publicly that there was a drug that was responsible. He didn't supposedly, in his public statement, say which drug, but he said that he determined that there was a drug responsible for it. Did, um, did he deliberately avoid saying the name of the drug so he would avoid legal ramifications, or he wasn't sure what it was? I'm not sure why he did it, but the very next day, Grunenthal took it off the market in Germany. The next wow. day. Yes, and over the following weeks, it's taken off in the United Kingdom as well. This all happened before McBride's letter was published. Right. Shortly after his letter, though, Lentz had his own articles published in The Lancet, and this led to eventual court cases and compensation from the drug company Grunenthal. Um, Australia banned the drug in 1962, eventually. I'm not sure when it actually came off the market in Australia, but it was banned in 1962. Yeah, so William McBride wasn't really the first to notice it, but he got a lot of fame and attention for it. And he, he ran with this. Uh, he set up his own research laboratory called Foundation 41, and he dug deeper into how um, the birth defects were caused. But he also examined other drugs as well. Now, and this is where things really became unstuck. So in 1981, he published a paper claiming that there was another anti-nausea drug with the brand name Debendox that also caused birth defects. It was pulled off the market shortly after that, in about 1983. But later on, he appeared in court cases as a witness about why this drug was bad. Trouble is that in the, um, these investigations, and particularly as the ABC investigation revealed, he didn't really have any evidence to show that this drug was bad. In fact, he had done some trials on a related drug, or a similar drug called um, scopolamine, um, which had been tested on rabbits. 
But then it turned out that the um, the data from the scopolamine study was wrong. Like they misrepresented the number of rabbits tested and the doses of drug given oh. and even what the, um, the effect on the fetuses was. So essentially it was found to be scientific fraud. Whoa. And in 1993, he was struck off the New South Wales Medical Register. Huh. So scandalous. That was pretty scandalous. So that's, that is the, the basics of the story. It doesn't just end quite there that simply. He was later reinstated to the register in um, 1998. So that was what, like six years later? A judge decided he had shown sufficient remorse, apparently. And now there is a fresh controversy ignited by his death. And this is essentially because, like I said, the ABC, Dr. Norman Swan of the ABC had published his story in the late 80s, got a lot of attention for it. The Australian newspaper, unsurprisingly, has taken an anti-ABC stance on this whole matter and is publishing articles defending William McBride, including opinion from his, his daughter, who is defending his actions. She actually alleges that her father's troubles were caused by drug companies fighting dirty, as, as she put it. So, look, I, when I saw that the ABC published these articles, I actually thought, I wonder what the Australian has to say about it, because they're <laughs> going to be taking the opposite viewpoint. And, look, it is rather odd to see... Uh, news limited paper alleging that the ABC is part of some big pharma conspiracy. <laughs> but that's the world we're living in. Um, however, science does have the last word. So Debendox, this drug that he had testified against, that was, like I said, pulled off the market in the early 80s. But subsequent research has found it to be safe. It is now, from about five years ago, is back on the market. There's been some um, advertising issues in America with Kim Kardashian, but I won't go into that. But it's, it's been found to be safe and is an anti-nausea drug. Thalidomide, on the other hand, apparently has benefited a bit from McBride's research. So Foundation 41 studies into how it causes birth defects helped to show that it affects cell division and now it's used as a cancer drug and also to treat a particular complication of leprosy. Still not to be used in pregnancy, though is the warning. But essentially it's back being used again because it does have some uses. So I don't know, look, it's an interesting thing. Like due to the, the ongoing controversy we're still going over William McBride, I mean... At the very least, we can say that people involved in science can be complicated. They're flawed human beings like any other human beings. But the science eventually works its way out. Now, it's true, there were thousands of people affected by thalidomide. But if you look at the time that it was on the market, it was like less than five years from when it went on the market to when it was pulled off because of the worries about birth defects. And that was because of scientific research. Yet the initial research was not up to scratch, but we've since learned more about now how to study things better and to look out for these things. So I don't know. I think we can just hope that science continues to correct the mistakes of the practitioners, no matter how flawed they may be. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. So there is another Jurassic movie in the zeitgeist and everyone is dinosaur mad. Again, I know mm. you are, Chris, aren't you? You have seen it. I am dinosaur furious, Claire. <laughs> <laughs> now, as I said, I wouldn't necessarily recommend seeing the movie. It looks terrible. Um, oh, I haven't so actually haven't, seen it. You I haven't, haven't actually seen, seen it. it. No, oh, well, no. But, but I don't want to make this – this story is not about seeing the movie. But it's always a good time to regroup, come together and <laughs> catch up on our dinosaur news. There's or always a lot talk. of dinosaur news. For, for creatures that have been extinct for, as you said, Stu, 65 million years, there always <laughs> seems to be a lot going on with dinosaurs. Well, there are. Well, I mean, we keep dragging new fossils out of the ground and finding out new things mm. about mm. what uh, mm. the di- who they were. I think, I think you'll find that they're all old fossils, actually. 
Oh, gosh, you're such a pedant. Anyway, okay. <laughs> okay, so tell me, when you think of a plant-eating dinosaur, what do you picture? Uh, a dinosaur with his mouth full of greens? No, probably probably one of those probably one of those um, long tail, big long tail, long, long neck, neck ones that hang around in swamps because yeah, that's all thick my in the middle. All, all my all yeah, my yeah, pic- thick in the middle. Yeah. Thick in the middle, yeah. Thick at each end. Yeah, a Brachiosaurus or a Diplodocus type one. Or a Brontosaurus. Um, or a Brontosaurus. Yeah. A Brontosaurus. Or a Patasaurus. Or an Apatosaurus, exactly. The ones you see gracefully moving through a landscape in Jurassic Park. Right, yes. Yeah. Yep. Is that graceful or just slow? <laughs> it's kind of plodding more than graceful, I think. The music made it seem graceful. It was True. graceful, True. Stu. Come on. It was graceful. The delicate Da-da. ballet of the Brontosaurus. It was. It is a delicate <laughs> ballet. Okay, anyway, anyway, so what you're thinking of there is a sauropod. Mm. That is the um, family of dinosaurs. And news hot off the press is that researchers have just discovered another species, old species, extinct species. Stu, how, how am I doing here? Oh, great. Keep, <laughs> keep it up. In the fossil record of a sauropod that used to live in what is now known as Argentina. Now... Back then it was known as Pangea. Back then it wasn't known as anything, but we called it Pangea. Okay, but I feel like there's a lot of these. There were a lot of these things and they're finding fossils of them all the time. What makes this one special? Why is this one lost in science newsworthy, Claire? <laughs> um, well, okay, do you want to know its name first? Oh, yeah, sure. tell us so, so Okay, it is Ingentia Prima. That's a pretty great name. Prima yeah, for short. Let's just call it's just called like Prima. Like the juice boxes. Like the juice boxes. Anyway, um, Prima the dinosaur, you want to know why it's special? Yes. It's special because it is a lot older than anyone expected a big sauropod to be. And I'm not just talking about a couple of hundred thousand years. Prima the dinosaur is actually 30 million years older than any other previously described sauropod. Now, sauropods are very special because they're the biggest land animals ever. Yes. So to have a huge dinosaur, gigantic dinosaur, walk this earth 30 million years earlier than you expected, it's a bit of a shake-up in the dinosaur world. I'm sure the earth is literally quaking at the, at the, the force of it. But yeah. I, guess, I guess also, I mean, if they're going to be so big, then you'd imagine they would take a while to evolve to be that big. So like, how big was this Prima? Prima was about... 10 metres long and about up to 10 tonnes. Right. Yeah. So, so not, not, not one on of the, the biggest. Not one of the biggest, but definitely on its way. Mm. Mm. So maybe, maybe, maybe that means that they were still getting bigger when well, yeah. that one first appeared. But the shape was, is that what they're really looking at? Is that uh, skinny, at, skinny at both ends and thick in the middle? Yeah. Look, um, the, the, research, <laughs> the research that was published this week in true scientist style, they're sort of underselling. I think the time frame's quite remarkable that it was, you know, it's, I mean, 30 million years is a, is a long time. They're sort of underselling this time frame. The title of the journal is An Early Trend Towards Gigantism in Triassic Sauropodomorph Dinosaurs. Also, Triassic period, is it? It is the Triassic period. Because like, it says Triassic and Jurassic and Cretaceous. Isn't That's that right. right. Yes. yes. So Triassic was the early... Early. Age of the dinosaurs. Yes. Right. Yes. And there's an early trend. Now, um, I don't know about you, but when I think about trends, I think about 
you know, fidget spinners or something like that that mm. last about two weeks. Um, I don't think of 30 million years being an early trend, but uh, anyway. Being, being 30 million years ahead of the trend, is that's pretty pretty uh, on trend. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes trends stick around, like, you know, cargo shorts. <laughs> uh I don't, I don't think, think dinosaurs have uh, stuck around. Oh, Chris, really? Is that? Have you still got some? Uh. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, trends aside, what we have here is a newly uncovered fossil from a very big animal um, and a very, very long time ago. And because these sauropods were the biggest land animal to ever grace this earth, yeah, it, it, it does tell us a little bit about how these gigantic animals have evolved. So there are a couple of differences between the prima um, or prima dinosaur and the brontosaurus and apatosaurus and the younger cousins, so to speak. While dinosaurs like the brontosaurus and the diplodocus stood on straight legs, uh, straight tree trunk-like legs, the prima is thought to have stood on a flexed foot. Mm. So imagine, I guess, like a like a chicken foot, like a little bit of a flexed chicken foot, or more like, or more like a like a like, like grazing animals like deer and stuff like that sort of have bendy legs, not or like tree trunk a, legs, or yeah. like a ballerina. So it was kind of a prima donna. <laughs> oh, it was definitely prima donna. Yeah, thirty million years. Oh dear. <clears throat> anyway, um, the prima dinosaur bones also showed signs of seasonal growth spurts which is quite different to how the later sauropods grew. So they see this in their bones, that they went through these states of like exceptional growth and then they slowed down, which is quite interesting as well. But one thing that these animals do have in common with the other giants is that they had giant air sacs in their throat. Yeah, just like the Diplodocus and the Brachiosaurs. And um, our modern-day dinosaur cousins... Birds. Yeah. Um, so now you're all up to date with your sauropod news. So when you do inevitably catch a glimpse of Jurassic Park 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 or 6. You've got another reason to say that's inaccurate. Exactly. Yeah. Pretty much everyone has heard of Coco the gorilla who passed away a couple of weeks ago. She had a pet kitten and she was friends with Robin Williams. And most famously, she learned sign language. Or did she? Did she learn sign language? <laughs> well, I, mean, I mean, you've just told us that she did, and then you just told us that well, she didn't. She, so. she's famous for learning sign language. The question is... Oh, what is learning sign language? Well, what? I guess. Okay. So an animal learning a language, a human language... Uh, even one which consists of symbols instead of spoken or written words is pretty amazing by anyone's measure. And Coco did that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's not just repetition or something like, you know, what parrots do. Well, it turns out, no, she didn't. Oh. Or at least she didn't demonstrate the level of understanding of the language to show that she understood the language itself. Now, that's not to say that she lacks intelligence or lacked intelligence or emotional depth or any of those things that people loved her for. But whether she understood the language attributed to her or not is a matter of science. And it's, in fact, something that people have looked into in the past in uh, scientific circles. So let's go back. Yeah. Were they just waiting till she died to, um, to tell everyone that she couldn't actually understand? 
Or she, she didn't actually know I, the language. I think Stu was waiting until she died before he, he told everyone this. Well, I, I was only reading up about it because I was curious about how much she could understand. It sounds a lot like gorilla slander um, and that now she's dead, she can't uh, sue you for defamation. I don't think you can be sued by an animal. Well, there was well an ani- some people thought she was a person. There was an animal that uh, the monkey took the picture. Oh, yes. Oh, that, that, is a, that is an ongoing, yeah. ongoing civil yeah. case, isn't it? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So anyway, let's go back in time to when animal language was a huge topic for research all over the world. It was the 1970s. Uh, when anything seemed possible. <laughs> uh, and this is when researchers, well, not first decided to see if animals could learn human language, but they really got stuck into it. So human language is diverse and universal. Every culture has its own language. But in the 70s, a couple of researchers decided to raise a chimpanzee as if it were human, which raises some ethical questions in the first place. But We'll gloss over them for the moment. They let it live in their house. They dressed it. They treated it as a human child. And, of course, a chimp's vocal machinery is not set up for human language. A chimp can't... You can't just suddenly teach it how to say words. So they decided to teach the chimp American Sign Language instead, just as they would teach a deaf child sign language. And Washo, the chimp did learn many of the sign language symbols, somewhere between 100 and 350 symbols, depending who you ask. Uh, there's a lot of... What if we ask Washo? If you are, well, you can't. Washo has since passed away. Okay. This is a long time ago. So inspired by Washo, another researcher took up the challenge and trained a chimp called Nimchimpsky. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yes, famous linguist... Noam Chomsky, they named the chimp after him. So Nim Chimpsky, they trained Nim how to use signs to communicate. Now, the lead researcher, Herbert Terrace, reported in the journal Science in 1979 that the chimp learned numerous symbols for individual objects, but he concluded that the chimp showed, and this is a quote, no unequivocal evidence of mastering the conversational, semantic, or syntactic organisation of language. In other words, the chimp could show you what the symbol for something was, but it could not form a sentence, so therefore did not know the language. That's like me trying to learn French. Well, you could learn, you just choose not to. No, I, I've, learned lots, I've learned lots of words, and but then I you have trouble forming all. sentences. Oh, well, that's oh. you could learn the syntax, though. You've learnt one language. Mm. Is your middle name Coco? <laughs> anyway, the real point about Coco and all non-human participants in these kinds of experiments is that words are just symbols with attached meaning, and lots of animals can learn symbols in that context. Cats, for example, do not... <laughs> really? Yeah, cats, for example, don't meow to each other. They only meow to humans to get our attention. So we're projecting meaning onto it, but they, when they meow at us, they're saying, hey, I want to be let in or I want some food or whatever it is that they want, and we have to figure that out. I'm upset and I don't know why. That's what my cat says. <laughs> well, I think a lot of cats meow for that exact yeah, reason, yeah. and we don't know why either because we're still working on that. But look, they mostly just want to get our attention, hope we'll figure out what they want. But a lot of animals can use or learn to recognize symbols. So, you know, they've even trained bees to roll a little ball into a particular location and they get a reward for it. And so teaching animals to 
recognize or imitate a symbol to get a reward is pretty straightforward training. I mean, we go to, used to, go to circuses and watch animals do all sorts of things which they've been trained to do. So really, these chimps and these gorillas have been trained to do these symbols for which they get rewarded in some way or another. As for animals using sign language, it seems to be not much more than a complex way for them to ask for things, or as some less friendly researchers have put it, to beg for specific things. So instead of just meowing like a cat would meow, they can say, I want my ball, or I want my, you know, I want some lollies, or I want some, I want to pat my kitten. That is still communicating. It is communicating, but it is not language, because language has syntax and all those other things. What was it? Uh, Semantics, syntax, and organization, and conversation as well. So Coco the gorilla has been put in situations where people could ask her questions and she would answer them, but they were always via the handler interpreting both the sign language and the question to the gorilla and then interpreting her answers to make them make sense for the question. And there's no published papers about Coco either. If there was any scientific evidence that she could use the language, and that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the sign language, as in the symbols from the sign language. She obviously could use those. But whether she could converse with a human using what we would call language is what we're in question here. There's a huge folklore that's grown up around Coco. You know, all the kind of stories about things she said or little, you know, tricks she played or meaningful speeches about how people should save the earth and the environment. Are you saying this is all manufactured? Quite possibly. It was all just the interpreter the whole time. Um, I mean, you know, this is the thing. Even when you see video of Coco interacting with people, you can't see what's going on in the room. And, and a lot of people have pointed out that the interpreter or the, the handler did do a lot of prompting to get things. And then, you know, they would film when Coco got the answer right and things like that. So this it's very tricky. But one of the interesting things about it is that the reason you know we don't know any other can you name any other apes around who know sign language and who communicate with sign language i'll get back to you on that one right but she's famous because she could communicate with sign language the reason that she's an anomaly is because the evidence for animal comprehension of language was shown to be lacking 40 years ago when terrace published his paper in science saying well our chimp can't actually use language uh, he can learn the signs, he can learn the symbols, but he can't actually use language as we recognise what language is. So the reason that nobody is doing that work anymore is because it didn't go anywhere. So Coco is kind of the last of a generation of apes who were they were trying to train to speak languages. But if they could, if that research in the 70s had shown otherwise, there would be numerous apes around. And the, the thing about apes too is when they learn a new skill... They teach other apes how to do it, and they're not able to do that. So that means that they don't really understand what they're doing. Because if they did understand that it was something that was useful, they would communicate it to other apes and then be able to teach each other. And we'd end up on Planet of the Apes, I guess, um, if they all started learning sign language. But, you know, that's that's by the by. I, look, I, I just thought it was, you know, I think the level of skill and the level of ability that Coco is attributed with has been exaggerated by, well, mostly by the media because it's a nice story. And, you know, that's that's not to say that she didn't love her little kittens that she had over the years. Of course she did. But we've all seen videos of animals bonding with each other. They Animals like other animals, if 
if they're introduced in the right situation, they tend to often get along more often than not anyway. But one thing about reading, reading about all of this made me think about animal to human communication is that we don't need it. Why do we need to do this? We're intelligent enough and empathetic enough to figure out what animals want and need without them being able to speak directly to us, to ask for it. We're supposed to be the intelligent ones around here. We have science to figure out animal behavior and all that sort of stuff. Maybe we should be trying to understand them a bit better as they fit into the world, as they actually fit into the world, rather than trying to get them to understand us and how we want them to fit into the world. Okay, and that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Lost in Science, of course, is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We'd love you to get in touch with us. Please send us an email at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook. We are Lost in Science on 3CR. You can find us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1 or you can find us on your local podcasting app. If you find us on an app like, you know, Apple iTunes or Apple Podcasts, please give us a good rating and a review as that helps us lift us in the search rankings so other people can find us. Otherwise, you can just listen to us on the radio. That's the old-fashioned traditional way to do it because at the same time every week you'll find Claire, Stu and Chris getting Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.